This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hollywood Blues. Well, so do we. And I'm really, really happy to talk to this gentleman. That's his voice, by the way. And he has a new book out. It is called Cookies and Milk. Cookies and Milk. Let me welcome the great Sean Amos. Hi. Hello. Good to see you. Thanks, Thanks for having me, Sister Hunter. Listen, Reverend, Reverend, Reverend. Um, many people, I was telling you, uh, before we came on that your dad, Wally famous Amos was a staple in our community. You know, everyone knew famous Amos because not just the cookies, the cookies were delicious. Let me just be transparent. The cookies were chef's kiss to, to the recipe, but his showmanship, his marketing brought you in. And it was the first time many of us saw a black man, you know, on television with his own brand that we could invest in and eat some delicious cookies. So I'm imagining cookies and milk is an, is an homage to Wally famous Amos. It is uh, amongst other things. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, uh, you've got some illustrious uh, alumni in the show. So I'm, I'm honored to, uh, to be part of the, the group. Listen, this this um, show, well, let me just, let me just clear that up. Cause I, you know, people come in with that, you know, wow. But this is the mission, you know, to talk to interesting people, to talk to amazing people, to talk to people who can drop a brick in, give people some insight and wisdom. You know, that's my that's the, the task that I've been given in life. So I'm just happy to have a platform where we can talk with folk like you. Well, so thank you. Yeah. Well, you're doing it. You're inspiration. Um, yeah. Cookies and milk is um, it, it's an homage to my dad. I, I helped him open up that first famous famous cookie store in uh, 1975. And uh, although the book fudges and says it's 1976. Uh, so it's uh, it's an homage to him, to entrepreneurship, to black fatherhood. Um, my father was uh, divorced uh, a few times over, um, and that uh, moment of me and him in that store together was a time I sort of had him to myself and and and, and had a, a real father son experience. I'm a divorced dad myself. Uh, it, it's a it's a cycle that exists uh, in our in our community, and and I wanted to take away some of that stigma and then shine a light on black fatherhood. Uh, it's a love letter to music and the blues and, uh, and, and, and to Hollywood where I grew up in the seventies. I was a place full of crazy characters and where a kid could, you know, run around on the streets and, and sort of learn not only from his family, but learn from his neighborhood and, and learn from people who you know, came to that store uh, and, and, was, and share in community versus hiding from your community. Mm. Uh, so that, that, that's about all those things. Sean Amos, take us back. So Wally Amos was also uh, a product of a divorce. His his parents divorced. Your parents yeah. divorced. You divorced. You know, like yeah. there is a, a cycle, a generational cycle. Yeah. But so so take us to that first store. Was your dad a part time dad? Like was this your summer spending your summers with Wally Amos, or what? Were you? Did he have custody of you? Nope. No, my parents shared custody, and. Uh... 
he opened the store in, in this in the spring the book takes place in the summer because it's sort of an, an easier sort of convention for the book uh but he opened it in the spring but that store was my hangout man i had I, I had a clubhouse in the storage room uh i had another clubhouse in the corner of the parking lot in the back and made up the little boxes <laughs> my grandmother had a greenhouse in, in, the, in the parking lot where she would you know grow her plants and you know hang them in the store so it was a family hang uh, and I'd go there after school. I'd just, uh, milk crates behind the cash register and, you know, sell cookies to customers. I'd put an apron and go in the back. So it was a place where I, I learned how to work for the first time. I learned how to, you know, focus on the details. Uh, I learned how to talk to people and engage with people. I and mean, my dad taught me some real lessons you know, in that in that store. Um, and it was it was my second home. That is powerful. My dad had a corner store in Newark for 18 years, and I used uh, to know, go yeah. in and uh, go to the wholesale house with him and get the, the juices and the sodas and then stack them, yeah. and everything had to be turned just right, help them wipe that- them. <laughs> you know, and, and for black kids, yeah. you know, the, the the no one's going to teach you that, and it's it's by watching. It's not like, you know, my dad's. this is how you do this. You you watch, you watch, and I'm sure – what you learned so so he opened this store give us the address of the store tell us exactly Sem- you know, <laughs> come on i love you said that the, the, the juice and there's a scene in the book where uh the character's name is ellis which is my middle name and my son's name the, the book's dedicated to my father and my son and i write them uh, i'm writing this book is to build a bridge between these generations and there's a scene in the book where ellis is stacking the little pint size uh, half pint milk cartons and saying hey so you have to line them up correctly they all have to face the right way yeah, <laughs> I love you saying that. Seventy-one eighty-one Sunset Boulevard on the corner on the corner of Sunset and Formosa. He had this uh, little song uh, he'd sing when we did radio ads: the Sunset and Formosa, Sunset and Formosa. It was a, it was across the street, and the, the book is a bit of a G-rated version than the reality of Hollywood seventies. But the yeah, I was gonna say that was, was like a nasty street. strip, right? <laughs> it was across the street from a strip club. Uh, it, there were some, uh, you know, vice cops and, and call girls who came in that store pretty regularly. I would wait for my carpool in the morning down the street from the store and call girls would be there in the morning uh, and sending me off to school, telling me, you know, be a good boy in school and learn some stuff. Uh, and there were musicians who came in through there. There were out of work actors who came in through there. There were celebrities who drove up in limousine, limousines coming through there. Uh, everyone was coming through that store. It, it was a complete cross section of humanity coming through that store. Why cookies? You know, it was his, um, it was a hobby. Uh, this is in the book as well. He moved from Tallahassee, Florida uh, to New York City uh, when he was 12 years old. Uh, he lived with his aunt. His parents were divorced, like I said. His mom sent him off on a train to live with her sister, his aunt Della, uh, up in Harlem. Aunt Della made him chocolate chip cookies for the first time when he was 12 years old. It was a memory that stuck in his head. He later became an agent at the William Morris Agency. He was the first black agent in the business. Still one of only a few black agents around. He quit William Morris. He booked all the Motown acts. He booked Simon and Garfunkel. He signed Simon and Garfunkel. He booked Solomon Burke, booked, booked some of the British invasion bands. He was scheduled to be the head of the music department at William Morris. They wouldn't promote him because they didn't think uh, others would take orders from a black guy. He quit in protest, uh, left for LA with Hugh Masekela, a South African trumpeter, wow. who was the last client he had. When they got to LA with me, who was less than a year old, and my mother, Hugh, decided he was going to go a different way. So he's stuck in L.A. with a kid, a wife, no gig, um, picked up a bunch of other clients, became a personal manager, managed some you know, B-level comedians and actors and musicians, had offices on the a and Records lot in Hollywood, uh, right next to Quincy Jones, had an office next door. 
I used to run around that lot as a kid going to the recording studios and stuff. And he made cookies as a hobby. He was stressed out, trying to figure out how to pay the bills. And one night he thought about uh, on Della, went into a Ralph's supermarket on Sunset Boulevard, which is called the Rock and Roll Ralph's, which features prominently in the book, and picked up a pack of Nestle's chocolate chips, this yellow uh, bag of chocolate chips. On the back was a recipe. And he just started making cookies. And literally, it was like, he, instead of going to the bar after work, he'd go to the kitchen, make cookies. There's a photo uh, in the back of the book of me and him making cookies together, wearing our dashikis. <laughs> and he would bring these cookies around to pitch meetings, to recording studios, to sound stages. And he just became known around Hollywood as this you know, manager who had really good cookies. <laughs> and when all his sort of... Um, you know, uh, beds were off and he felt like he had sort of, you know, he's up against the wall. He's like, I'm going to open up a store selling cookies and borrowed uh, $25,000. Uh, Marvin Gaye uh, invested $10,000. Uh, a singer named Helen Reddy uh, who had a, a hit Wait, called Helen uh, I Am Woman. Helen Reddy? Yes. Helen, who I passed, Am Woman. Who passed away recently. Yes. I Am Woman, hear me roar. Yeah. So her, she passed away Wait, recently. Wait, hold on. Helen, so Marvin Gaye and Helen Reddy gave your dad the seed money put, for the cookies? Yep. That's and, crazy. Yeah, and a third guy named Artie Mogul, and a third guy named Artie Mogul, who was a music publisher, who um, I think was an early publisher of Bob Dylan's music. Um, so Herb Alpert, who was the A&A and records on that record lot, he was going to put in money, but his advisors told him it was a bad investment. So he pulled out the last minute uh, and then wow. Artie Mogul came in. But yeah, to, uh, Marvin Gaye, Helen Reddy, and already mogul 25 grand and moved into this ramshackle a-frame uh, store on sunset boulevard across from the strip club it used to be a house of pies and a pinball joints he and i were in there tearing up this orange shag carpet you know cleaning up the place and so it began i love it the book is 320 pages of goodness written for <laughs> written for a young audience but you know as i often tell yeah it's for middle schoolers yeah i often say though children's book writers, young adult in particular, are my favorite because the level and depth of detail, super important because you're there to spark the imagination of a young person. I think a lot yeah. of adults yeah. have adult imaginations, which is why we have the ridiculousness that we have going on in this country right now. It's a lack of ma imagination and fear, and, uh, a lack of curiosity and fear. And so I love, I love, love, love the story that is told here of not just father and son, but community and, you know, ingenuity and turning cookie dough into cookies or turning crap into cookies, I guess. Sure. I don't want to do the lemon and lemonade thing. <laughs> turning crap into cookies. And believing in yourself and believing in yourself, you know? I mean, there, there's a theme that runs in the book of, you know, the, the father in the book just had all these dumb ideas and, you know, and failure after failure to failure. And everyone just assumes this next thing is going to be another one of his dumb ideas. Um, but he keeps coming up with ideas. This idea of, you know, believing in yourself and sticking to it, you know, stick to itiveness, you know, as my dad always told me, and, and, and not giving up on yourself. And, and that's another theme of this book um, that is, um, that I learned from him, you know, for sure. It's like we, we sort of, you know, take so much, so, so much of our cues come from the outside world and this you know, instant gratification we want to get from people, particularly in the social media age. Uh, and, and, and we forget to hold on to our heart and hold on to our own vision of ourselves and, and let that be the fuel that pushes us through versus the number of clicks or likes or whatever we're getting from people. We're talking with Sean Amos. We're going to call him Reverend Amos in a minute. I'm going to tell you why. Not only is the book deep with, you know, the illustrations, very, very cute, very cute little cookies are all, all around the illustrations. But music, we start off playing something from you, Hollywood Blues. You have a whole playlist at the end of the book 
with Muddy yeah. Waters, Funkadelic. DJ Wishbone's playlist. Yeah. The Jackson Five and uh, Howlin', Howlin' Wolf and, and Junior Wells. Talk about that and how did you come up with, let me infuse, because to me, I feel like music is, you know, they say it soothes the savage beast, but I think it's 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 kind of like the heartstrings of humanity, like the drums and the guitars and, the, yeah. and like all of that. When you let yourself go into good music, not debaucherous, ridiculous, dumb music and rap, that says nothing, but music that actually has a message, it can do the same thing as writing. What What was the inspiration yeah. to do this playlist? You know, music saved my life. Man. I mean, literally, music saved my life. Music continues to save my life. And when I discovered the blues, I, I, I came to playing music relatively late. I've made a number of albums as a singer-songwriter and sort of doing the singer-songwriter, you know, folky kind of thing. I, I discovered blues as a musician uh, in 2012 and committed my rest of my musical life to it because blues was a mo the first time I played and sang blues was when I finally and firmly understood who I was and where I came from. And, and I saw myself in this lineage uh, of, of, of proud black people. And, you know, I grew up in, in a white neighborhood, the only black kid in my school, the only black kid on my block. I never saw anyone who looked like me, you know, forever, forever. And it was a, a form of brainwashing in a way, you know, and, and, it, and it took me from myself and, uh, and the blues brought me back to myself and brought me back to my, my, my ancestry, my roots and my community. And, and, it, and it gave me, and it made me proud uh, of who I was and it helped me to um, be okay with my version of blackness as opposed mm. to some other version of blackness I thought I should subscribe to. And so the blues is just, you know, um, beautiful music for me. And, and, and so it plays prominently in the book and, and it, it, it sort of serves as a way to help understand yourself because Ellis in the book, as me as a kid, is trying to understand himself. Like, where do I come from? You know, why, you know, I, I see no one who looks like me. You know, where, who am I? Where do I come from? Where, you know, why is my hair like this? And other kids' hair is like that. And, you know, where, how can I form my own identity? So he plays harmonica and he dives into the blues and he plays vinyl and he ends up meeting this DJ named DJ Wishbone who works at a radio station down the street, uh, K-I-R-A, keeping it real always. And he stumbles into his radio station and gets introduced to this world of blackness, this world of through music, through the Jackson Five, through Funkadelic, through you know Fatback Band, and all these these bands with these names he's never heard before. And he just falls in love with his music and discovers his his people you know, uh, through through this through this DJ. And so it's a love letter to music, and it's a love letter to listening to music with intentionality, not on a playlist and not clicking on it, but actually like taking the time to put a vinyl on. I think there's a chapter in the book that's just dedicated to the needle drop, you know, like just, just you know, what it means to hold a piece of you know vinyl in your hand and lay it on the turntable and try and line up the needle just perfectly. So it hits right at the beginning of the song, just that whole intentionality behind music. And when you put that intentionality, how it connects you even more deeply to the music versus just picking up a phone and you know, hitting the playlist and having it be in the background. So um, yeah, music is a big character in, in, in this book. Well, I'm glad that vinyl's coming, making a comeback. Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. Was Manish Boy your entry point? Was that was that the what 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 song got you open? What yeah, you know it's 
it's funny. I, I had an interesting journey. I got interested. What opened me up was reading about the blues first before hearing it. So I, I read uh, a book by a guy named Peter Goralnik, who's a great music historian, who wrote a book called Feel Like Going Home, which is about the early days of the blues music and you know, sort of its migration up to Chicago for Chicago blues. And that book just like blew me away. He introduced me to like my history. And I was, I was in college and I, here in New York, went to NYU. I got in a car and drove down south that spring break and went to like the crossroads and went everywhere wow. with this book with me, listening to everything that was in that book. So it was Howlin' Wolf and it was Muddy Waters and it was Lou Walter and it was Junior Wells and it was the Sonny Boy Williamson. It was all this classic. That's all I listened to, just driving through the south. And that was it for me. And that was it for me. Um, you know, and, and all of those guys have stuck for me. I, I, I go back last night, I played Who to Man Blues by Junior Wells. I mean, there's not a week that goes by that I don't listen to all those cats. <laughs> that that was a period, I'm thinking, was it late 70s, early 80s? It's sort of like a, um, who, like the golden era where you could jump in a car and drive down south without fear. Like, <laughs> I'm thinking somebody listening yeah. right now, reading your book, if you're a black person in America, you can't just jump in your car without having a whole lot of other considerations and drive down south from New York. Like I've, I've been well, I went back down way. south. I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I played through the south. I've written about this, and, and um, I put out a compilation album to uh, to coincide with the book um, uh, called Hollywood Blues, and, and I write about uh, a song I wrote called "Moved" that I wrote going through the south in 2016 right after what's his name won the election and uh and it changed man you felt it i mean it's like a switch got thrown on and it was like whoa this vibe is totally different now well, what's going on here it, it felt tense it felt unwelcome and the self-consciousness that didn't exist in me when i was going down south back in college all of a sudden like you know re-emerged and um it, it, it was it was it was nasty it was yeah. nasty and that's it's sad because the you know there's I, I watch a lot of television so reacher which is on amazon he gets in the car jack reacher in this latest iteration and he's playing blues huh. he's going on a trip to you know he's trying to find muddy water like he's and then he gets caught up in this murder thing but you know the the freedom to be able to get in the car listen to music experience america experience history go yeah. to these places you know, is part of the freedom, right? That you would expect to be yeah, in America absolutely. that's now denied people because of the climate of fear yeah. and a lack of curiosity and insecurity and all of that. Yeah, I, but yeah, I had a moment. Can I tell you a quick story? I, 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 had a, so, I had a wait, moment. Let me just tell that, people, so just in case they just tuned in for the first time, uh, and you need to go back and listen to the whole thing. Sean Amos, the son of Wally, famous Amos. He's also Reverend Amos is with us. Please tell us this story, sir. So same same tour, 2016, driving through the South. I think we were on our way from uh, Birmingham <laughs> uh, to, uh, to God, where are we going? Atlanta, maybe? I can't remember where we're going. And it was late night with my band, my uh, black drummer, Rod Bland, who's the summer of Bobby Blue Bland, the great uh, blues singer. Um, he's sitting in front of me. I'm driving. Um, my guitarist and bass player in the back were both white. Uh, got pulled over in the middle of the night, middle of nowhere, no lights going on. Guy comes over, shines the light, um, sees Rod and I. Rod's about you know three shades darker than I am, and um, wearing his hoodie. And his this cop was just like his energy was dark. Shined the light, shone the light in the back. Saw my two uh, white bandmates. His temperament completely changed. 
um, ended up letting us off and, and we drove off and I turned around and said, you guys just saved our asses, you know, just, just being in the backseat. Um, it was, uh, it was deep. And I ended up writing a song right afterwards called Does My Life Matter, um, which is on uh, an album of mine. But yeah, it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's day to day sometimes, man. It's day to day for us sometimes. Well, I'm going to tell you, your life matters. And I appreciate uh, that you're sharing this story following Mr. Ellis, young Ellis Johnson on his journey to discovering himself. And the book is called Cookies and Milk, Cookies and Milk. And Sean Amos is the author. All right. Take us back to 1975, 1975. You're in the store. You're, you're, you pulled up the shag carpet. You opened the first day. Do you remember opening the first day or were you there? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 In a block party. So my dad had these block parties for probably the first like three or four years that he was in business, uh, these cookies and milk parties and uh, blocked off the street. He was on the corner of Sunset and Formosa. So he uh, blocked off the Formosa block, uh, had a steel drum band, had a DJ, uh, cookies and milk and champagne. <laughs> and, uh, and people came from all over. The parking lot was painted. There's an amazing uh, arts organization in Los Angeles called St. Elmo Village. Uh, that's a community made up of artists in the mid-city district of Los Angeles. They uh, painted a beautiful mural on the parking lot, which is uh, right about in the, book, in the book. And we partied, you know, all, all afternoon. And uh, my friends came over and we you know, ran around, you know, ran between people's legs and, you know, went into the kitchen and snuck cookies off the tray. Uh, we served some cookies in the back. It was, um, yeah, those parties were amazing. I think the, the second year we did it, Muhammad Ali came by. Uh, for one of the parties, the third year, Andy Warhol was there, uh, and there was a we had a, we had a bakery a few years later in Nutley, New Jersey. I'm not sure where in New Jersey you are, but in Nutley, New Jersey, no. we had we had a big uh, we had a big commissary, and Andy Warhol would come out there to bake cookies, uh, like for like about a month or so. He'd come out and just to bake right. cookies. He liked it with a little with a little Polaroid camera. So I was going to ask you, when did you know that this was going to be a success, or did you ever talk to your dad about ever worrying about? it not being a success, but it sounds like it was a success, success for, from day one. It, it, it hit right away, man. It hit right away. You know, he, it was the right thing at the right time. My father was a brilliant uh, marketer, you know, a, 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 you know, a challenged businessman, but a, but a brilliant marketer. Uh, he had a, he, his whole thing was he treated the cookie like his client. So because he was a manager, the whole thing was, okay, I found my next client and this one's really going to make it and it's the cookie. So we had headshot, black and white headshots made of the cookie. And in the bottom left hand uh, of the eight by 10 glossy was a William Morris logo as if, you know, the cookie was represented by William Morris. And in the other corner was an a Records logo, you know, the, the, the label he was signed to. Uh, on, the, on the door leading into the kitchen, there was a big gold star. So the cookies, if the, you know, the, the, the kitchen was its dressing room. Uh, so the whole thing was about the, the, the cookie. Uh, so he, he, he just set the thing up so well. And this is an age before social media. It's an age before you know, anything sort of traveled virally like that. But he had this really great hook, man. And the product was amazing. Uh, and it just hit. It hit. And he was a outsized personality that people just, you know, he was infectious, man. His, his love and his humor and his, his big heartedness was completely infectious. And people just ate it up, man. And it, it hit. Well, speaking of eating it up in, in cookies and milk, you have the recipe you give away. 
the recipe at the yeah. so y'all got to get yeah. the it's it's been given away before I'm not, I'm I know not, I know but it's in the book away. it's in yeah. the book yeah. all right we're heading up on a holiday that I'm really frustrated that has become a national holiday it's called Juneteenth and when we think about freedom and reparations and all of these things I'm often you know challenged because in order to truly be free you have to be able to manage yourself your money your family, you know, it's like there's, it's a holistic approach to freedom. It's not just here, Mm. your freedom papers. You said your father was a great marketer, but not a good businessman or not good with money. When did you know that? When did he know that? And (laughs) what have you done to do it differently? Yeah, this is, uh, I'm glad you asked because this has been, um, you know, a topic of conversation within my family for a lot of years. And it's certainly a big part of his story. Anyone who Googles him or knows his story, you know, on any level of depth will, will know that he lost his business and, and, and yet sort of a, you know, not a happy third act. And, and, and a lot of folks have spun that. I, I sort of see some of the chatter of like, oh man, you know, black man's business being taken from him. It's always the way and yada, yada. I'm trying to make him a victim of some type of, you know, uh, conspiracy or something. And that's not the case, you know, but it's something deeper, more complex, which I think you were hinting at, which is that, you know, we still as a community, you know, we lack tools, you know, we lack some of the tools that, 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 that others have very, um, that are sort of a no brainer for, for other communities. Uh, and we have so much creativity, you know, more than, than most communities. And I mean, we have so much uh, entrepreneurship and we have so much um, belief in ourselves despite all these obstacles. It's, it, it, it's amazing, like the, the, the strength and the resilience and the creativity and the entrepreneurship within the black community. However, we've never been part of any system, you know, financial systems or, you know, we never hold, we've never held the strings that control these systems. And so we don't fully understand how those systems work uh, and we don't fully appreciate it. Uh, and and it, it is a skill and it is a skill. And not only is it a skill that needs to be learned, you also need to have access to be able to practice those skills. Uh, and, and, and then the other piece of it, I think, and I certainly suffered from this, and I think it's not just a black thing, but I think it's you know, a creative thing and an and a, and a, and a artistic thing. You, know, you, you hustle and you work and you bust your ass and then you make a few bucks. You're like, I deserve something for myself. You know? And so I'm going to buy myself a car. I'm going to buy myself because I deserve it. I've worked my ass off. And so you want these quick fixes to make yourself feel good and to display to others, you know, the fact that you've like worked your ass off and you finally got over a little bit. And, and, and I, and I get that, but that's like, that's not, that's not the big game. You know, that's not the big game. That, that, that's the short game. And so we, we play the short game and play the short game and play the short game and don't keep our eye on the long game and don't even understand what the long game is to some degree because we've never been allowed into the long game. So my father is, is an example of all of that that I just said, where he made money and he didn't know what to do with it. And he got, um, you know, he got heady, you know, and, and, and he like thought he knew everything because he knew this one thing you know <laughs> he, he, he had a hit and he was there at the right place at the right time he had a good idea and this is a thing man it's one thing to found a company it's another thing to grow a company it's another thing to build a company two completely separate skills and some people possess both but you know not all founders are operators you know and and not all operators are founders and so 
he needed someone to operate this thing and to grow this thing because he didn't have that skill set. But yet his name's on the marquee, it's his face. So no one could tell him anything. <laughs> and it became this really vicious cycle, you know? And so he kept making dumb mistakes. Not, not, yeah, that's, but he kept yeah. making mistakes. Uh, that, uninformed, that's right, person, right. Uninformed, yeah. That, that a business person would have known not to make, right? But he was making them and, uh, and, and, and didn't want to let go. And this is the thing too, Karen, I think it's, you know, and I've worked with musicians a lot too. I've been around the music scene a lot. And it's the same thing there where the other part of it is who do you trust, right? right. I mean, who do you trust when you haven't been part of the system and you've been, you, and you, you see yourself as an outsider and finally you got something of your own, you know, who do you trust? And so we let, you know, our second cousin run something or like our son run something or these people, because we trust them as relatives, but they're not, they're less qualified than maybe we are to do this stuff. So there's all these unqualified people sort of hanging around you, surrounding you. And, and yes, they're trustworthy in the sense that they are family or and whatever. They love but you. Yeah, they want they you love to be you, successful. But, yeah. but they're not qualified to run a business. <laughs> and so it, it just becomes this uh, albatross. And so uh, that was the trip, man. And so he just kept making mistakes, not letting the right people in to help him recover from those mistakes. Uh, and before he knew it, you know, this thing was tearing. And the only way to save it was to essentially cash out of it to bring someone in you know to to who knew how to run it but by that point he was so he had no leverage you know he had no leverage and 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 so and he he was so dilute so diluted in the thing that he was you know effectively forced into being a paid spokesperson you know for the company that he founded and it's tragic it's tragic and, 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 and it's horrible but it's not it's not the result of him being ripped off you know, it, 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 as, as I think some people have said, you know, it is the result of all of us, you know, <laughs> it's another example of a story that we all have and that we struggle to play the long game. And I think, and, and we struggle with um, not having the benefits of, of, of ownership, you know, generationally that, that, that others have had. Yeah, I mean, we look at these companies with uh, initials and things that have been around. I just did an event out at Hershey, and I look at what Milton Hershey built, you know, off of the back of black chocolate, cocoa uh, bean. But that's another story. Uh, But, you know, as I'm looking at But that's what the book's about, Karen. Yeah, I mean, oh, good, good. No, no, go. Tell me. That that, that, that was what the book's about, because, you know, there has been a pain in my family for years, you know, everyone sees famous famous all over the place right and and so there's been presumptions about you know what kind of money i've got there's been presumptions about my father and and i've got kids my, my siblings have kids you know we'll have grandkids at some point and there is there's a sadness that man this thing is so ubiquitous this brand is so ubiquitous throughout you know american society and we don't participate in any of that you know on on, on any level and it's um, it's a bummer, man. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a bummer. And um, and 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 I think, and we've been through our own grieving process of blaming our father, you know, at one point in time, and being angry at him, and then being angry at system, and being angry at this, and da 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 da, da. And, and sort of and having to process this. And the book is my attempt to reclaim some of that for ourselves, you know, because that story now is owned by everyone but us, you know. And I wanted to just for one moment reclaim some of that story for us and tell how my family or me as a representative of my family 
tell our own story. And so then my kids can sort of hold that up to their kids and, and something, have something that they can hold in their hands that's owned by them, that's got their name on it, that they own. And that was really important to me. It's called Cookies and Milk. Uh, he is Sean Amos, Sean Ellis Amos. If you could go, no, I don't want to go back in time, but for people who might be thinking about following in your dad's footsteps and their own idea, what are a couple of things that you could tell them sort of, you know, because the pain of what this story is and then the joy of sitting in front of you today tells me that the story is not over yet as long as there's breath. Right. Yeah. But give us a couple of if, if, you know pieces of advice uh, for what not to do or what could have been done differently. I think the balance is what I've learned. Like I, I learned so much from my father, both in terms of what he did wrong, you know, as much as what he did right. And, and I spent my whole life trying to parse that out and <laughs> figure out how to, you know, not fall in those same traps. And then some I have and some I sidestep. You know? um, I, I, I think one of the things I've come to realize is having the balance between hubris and humility. You know, it, it takes an incredible amount of, uh, of hubris and arrogance, frankly, to, to believe that you can do something that hasn't been done, that no one else thinks you are equipped to do for whatever reasons, you know, maybe good reasons or bad reasons, and people love to shoot other people down. It's sort of national pastime. Um, so you've got to have this sort of unending belief in yourself that sort of defies rationality. You have to, you know, you're pulling something out of thin air. And I, you know, whether it's writing a song or writing a book or starting a company or saying you're going to start a radio show, whatever. I mean, you got to sort of, you do the, you're, you're like your first fan when you have no fans and you, you got to see this thing that doesn't exist, exist yet and believe you can make it happen. And that's like a lot of hubris. And at the same time, you've got to balance that with a degree of humility to recognize you don't know everything and you, and you need help. Everyone needs help and everyone needs assistance. And so how do you always sort of toggle between those two polarities? You know, that I find for me at least, that's helped me to, um, you can't hold on all of it. You know, you can't hold on all of it. I used to, um, I used to write songs like all alone. I wanted, I wanted every part of the, I wanted my name on everything. I wanted written by, produced by, engineered by. I wanted my name on every single piece of it. Because you know? uh, it, was, it was, that was like the hubris, right? I was holding on to it so tightly. And I was getting results, but they weren't like, you know, and at some point, I'm like, 100% of nothing is nothing. <laughs> so, you know, let me let someone else in. Can I share? You know, can I share in order to grow? Um, and at that point, it's like, whoa, things started to grow. You know, so that, that, that balance of hubris and humility, I think, is, um, is, is, is just uh, paramount. Yeah, I'm going to tap into the reverend part. There's a scripture that says, plans fail from lack of counsel with many advisors, they succeed. To your point, mm -hmm. yes, good advisors. Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't think, I think that's implied. There's also a scripture, two or more gathered in my name, there I am, and a three-strand cord cannot be easily broken and to your point again mm -hmm. we get nowhere by ourselves and when we invest in other people in our ideas meaning we give people ownership because your idea is just your idea but you need people to manifest we need people to manifest the things that you may have given birth to in your spirit but now if you have a hundred people with ownership in that idea how much further can it go than just that one to your point so I'm just uh, doubling down. And then I want to ask you, are you a reverend reverend? Are you a, a, a 
what what kind of reverend, Sean? What are, are you an irreverent reverend? What what, what? I, I'm a I'm a I'm a mail order reverend. Yeah, I love it. Is, you know, so you can marry people. You you know you can come to christenings. I appreciate four weddings. Yeah. I can see it. I can yeah, see it. Yeah, yeah, All right. Yeah. So what, was this another kind of journey for you? Oh yeah, yeah. So I um, you know, I, I told you about the blues and, and my first discovery of the blues and how that you know really uh sort of opened me up to my to my to my history. And uh, I was playing blues in Italy. I was asked by a former bandmate of mine to come over to Italy and, and play some blues. This is in 2015. No, it's 2012. And um, and he knew I was a fan of the blues and I was sort of a student of it. So he's like, you put together a set list, I'll put a band together, come over and we'll have some fun in their way for a few weeks. So I went over there and that's the first time I ever sang the blues. I, I sort of listened to it and loved it and let it into my life, but it wasn't performing it. Uh, stood up in front of a bunch of Italians and it was like I became a different person, like singing these songs for the first time. It was like literally like the sky opened up above me and I like all of my like ancestry just poured into the top of my head. And I felt this, I, I, this, I saw myself this continuum of like, you know, what came before me, what's coming after me, myself in this long line of, um, of just beautiful blackness. And, uh, and in, in that moment, I was like transformed as this performer. I was like jumping up the tables, like holy roller kind of performer and so the crowd after the gigs would say el reverendo el reverendo the reverend uh i'm like wow these these uh, roman catholic italians are calling me a reverend that's uh, that's high praise so when i came back to uh, the states i'm like i'm i'm, I'm in i'm in I'm, I'm i'm gonna i'm the reverend i'm playing blues so uh and at the time it gave me a little bit of distance between sort of like my performing life and my other life i think i needed that sort of firewall of it so to be the Reverend Sean Amos on stage and to be Sean Amos in my private life was helpful to me. Um, and, and then I said, if, I, if I'm going to call myself a Reverend, I better really be a Reverend. So then Google and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Universal Life Church, $20, <laughs> boom, Reverend. Okay. Yeah, because when I was saying them scriptures, it looked like you hadn't seen them. So I was just, I was, I was test, I'd always be, be testing people, be testing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, I am. I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm a spiritual being. It was uh, very, very, very uh, ignorant in the. Uh, in, That's all right. That's all right. In, in, I, I just gave the, literature. The, the 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 another scripture. The word becomes flesh. If you live the word, then it becomes part of you. So you don't need chapter and verse. You don't need to start quoting. You use scripture in a way that I can, um, that I can feel and, and use. You know, it's. Yeah, I, I'm still going this process of like separating sort of the uh the words versus how people manipulate the words right and and, and sort of like the organization of religion versus sort of like the the um the embodiment of of, of spirituality i guess right and and so i i'm highly suspicious of like all organizations um and and i'm, and I'm highly curious about all people <laughs> and so when, when I hear people who sort of infuse with the spirit you know, and then put these words to use in their life in ways that are full of love, I'm like, well, tell me more about that, you know, versus this dogmatic thing, you, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, that's you, the you point. Are, you are, you are a reverend, Sister Hunter. Uh, no, but that's what we should all be doing, picking up our mat, just doing, all right, your dad is not an ancestor. He's still here, you know, right? And I want to ask how he Body. is. 
yeah, yeah, and that watching someone because I I had to watch my dad deteriorate over a few years, and it was really painful to watch somebody who was so freaking you know unstoppable, you know, to be reduced to you know because of illness, uh, a shell of himself. It was really hurtful to see your your dad go from that. Um, he was on Shark Tank a few years ago trying to make a comeback, which. I was like, boo, don't go on Shark Tank. Yeah, it's a, I, it's a, I, I, was, <laughs> yeah. I wasn't happy to do that. I wasn't happy to do that. Thing. I, okay. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have advised him to do that, but. How is he? And how should we remember Wally Amos? Oh, that's a beautiful question. Um, he has dementia. He's in the very, uh, he's in the fairly late stages of dementia. Um, he uh he's becoming nonverbal at this point so so uh um so it's tough you know they, they call it the long goodbye right so it, it is a long goodbye uh, uh i i saw him about a year ago he was in hawaii we've lived forever and he's in hawaii he's being taken care of um he's comfortable um and uh but you know he, he's he's not there you know in, in the same way uh he, uh, a woman who's uh, with him and taking care of him, was uh, has been reading him chapters of the book, uh, and, and that's been really uh, that's been sweet for me, you know, to to to, to know that. Um, we had one conversation a few months ago, and he caught the fact that in the book I had put the book in 1976, which I did because it was the bicentennial, and I wanted to sort of take advantage of that metaphorically. Um, he said, Sean, you, you put the book in 76, but we opened the store in 75. I'm like, so he, you know, these little moments of clarity, you know, pop in, which is cool. And then he asked me how my mother was, and my mother's been dead for years. <laughs> so you drift in and you drift out. Uh, but he's, um, but that's where he's at. Uh, how she'd be remembered um, as, uh, as an imperfect, uh, but uh, courageous dude, you know, if, uh, as someone who, uh, was um, in his own way, you know, doing what so many uh, people of his generation, you know, uh, try to do, which is be taken seriously uh, and to fight their way in uh, to a system that systematically left them out of it um, and to assert his, uh, his, his manhood um, in, 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 in the best way that he knew how to do. Mm. And he took care of others, man. You know, he, he did. I mean, he took care of others in the best way he could. He, he took care of his community. He took, he loved children. He loved to read. I mean, the irony is not lost on me that I'm sitting here, you know, talking about a book and I, I'm reading to kids now, you know, in the same way that my father did. Um, he, he, uh, you know, he wanted to, um, he wanted to give back, you know, and, and he did give back. He really, he really did. And, uh, and I'm proud of him for that. Cookies and milk, Sean Amos, Reverend Sean Amos is his stage name. Do you have your harmonica with you? Do you keep it around? Do I you? do. It's in my it's in my coat pocket, but uh, go, yeah, I always have a harmonica. I mean, hold, go, hold on, go, so, go so, get so, it, go double, get it, Sean. Sean, hold Sean on, hold, hold Sean, on, hold on, sister. Sean plays a harmonica. I want him to. We we came in on Hollywood blues. I want us to go out on a little impromptu harmonica playing because you know this. This book, this journey that you've taken with Cookies and Milk is the beginning, I think, of something that is going to catapult you beyond. But it is so, so, so rife with all of you. So I just want to, can you play us a little something, Sean? Sure. 
Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, you're thank incredible. You, Let's stay in touch, man. I want to just um, sit and talk with please. you. I could sit and talk with you forever, I'd love obviously. It. I'd love oh, it. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Cookies and Thanks milk, y'all. Yes, our pleasure. You have an open seat here, sir, and I need everyone to go get the book because we are building libraries, not for now, but for hundreds of years from now. We want to show the world what matters to us. And this is a story of coming of age, but it's also a story of legacy and relationship. Go get cookies and milk. Sean Amos, it's a pleasure meeting you.